Well, 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 it's once again time to tell you good people about Fangoria Magazine. For decades, Fangoria has been the gold standard of genre reporting, and in recent times, they've taken it up a notch with beautifully executed collectible issues of their magazine, filled with the hands-down best coverage of the horror, sci-fi, and fantasy genres. None of this writing is available online, so make sure to head over to Fangoria.com and pick yourself up a subscription. And because you're a listener of this very show, you can get a massive, astounding, miraculous 25% off your annual subscription when you enter in the promo code KINGCAST at checkout. And with all of that said, on with the show. Hi. My name is Stephen King. He's gonna break! Red rum! 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 Red Hello and welcome back to the KingCast on the Fangoria Podcast Network. My name's Scott Wampler. And I'm Eric Vespi. And we are your hosts. Now, we've discussed The Shining on this show before. Uh, we've covered it in uh, a regular episode of the show that was with uh, director Scott Derrickson. Uh, we covered it again in one of our Patreon commentaries with the great Glenn Mazzara. How we even covered Mick Garris's miniseries version of the title with our old pal Nick Lutzko. But we have yet to discuss... Kubrick's film with a female guest, which is uh, and a perspective that both Vespi and I have been very interested to bring to this particular property. I am therefore very excited to report that today is that day, and we've got one hell of a guest here to do it. After winning several literary awards, penning multiple TV shows, and directing two features based on her own scripts, today's guest landed on the radar of many American horror fans when her third feature, Tigers Are Not Afraid, debuted here in Austin at Fantastic Fest in 2017, where it scored her the Best Horror Director Award and instantly announced her as a ferociously entertaining talent to watch. Tigers Are Not Afraid went on to rack up over 50 more film festival awards around the world, 10 aerial award nominations, of which it won two, in her home country of Mexico a 97% on Rotten Tomatoes, and a handful of future directorial projects that will find her collaborating with folks the likes of Guillermo del Toro, Noah Hawley, and Blumhouse Productions. Ladies and gentlemen, it's my distinct honor to welcome the great Issa Lopez to the KingCast stage. Say hello to the listeners, Issa. Hello. That was very lovely, and it made me feel like a very interesting person. So I will be, I will be, you know, listening to that little thinking look for a week to come after <laughs> you air this. No, I'm kidding. Thank you so oh. much. I'm so excited and, to be here. Uh, we're excited to have you. And, you know, I wouldn't worry about being an interesting person. I did a deep dive on your Wikipedia page today and you have been working hard for a minute. You have done a lot of stuff that I, I honestly wasn't aware of. And, I guess my big question after reading over all that was, uh, what do you do with 50 awards? Are you getting trophies? Are you getting plaques? Like, where are you putting all these things? I know, I know. Some of them um, are, most of them are things that occupy space in the world. Not all of them. Um, And uh, I have... um, a very, very big, lovely, I have to say, lovely place in Mexico City. And I'm talking um, about it with such pride because I haven't set foot in it in a year and a half. 
because of the yeah. pandemic. <laughs> and and uh, and I live in LA, but I live in LA in a very cute, very small place. So all of those awards are taking a lot of space in in my library in my apartment in Mexico City, which I miss. But I but you know, it's looking better. It's looking better. So you put them all in one room, though. You don't scatter them throughout the house. No, there are most of them very scary to look at. <laughs> Let me tell you the truth. <laughs> a lot of those words come from the amazing uh, horror community and the horror festival circuit. And, um, and you know, these people, because it's natural, right? Um, uh, horror movies are f- uh, filled with uh, creatures and monsters and creature design. So it was bound to be that the awards in these festivals were going to be awesome and scary. <laughs> so um, so they look um, strange in your living room when you're having a lively party, but they look great in the library with all the comic books and all the geek stuff. And that's a <laughs> right. pretty good metaphor for, for my um, most of my career, where the front was a lot... Um, more what you would expect of of a filmmaker um, in Mexico City. And then behind it was all the geekery <laughs> hiding and waiting <laughs> for its moment to come out, right? <laughs> so what's the what's the scariest looking award? I'm picturing a bunch of skulls think. and or creatures. Yes, there's there's stuff. a bunch of skulls. I have to say that well the the most awesome there's so many so so good, but but really the most uh awesome to look at is the one from Fright Fest in Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. And uh, and they make this big ass, almost life-size golden skulls uh, held in a hand. I, I want a bunch of those <laughs> with tigers. So there's a bunch of golden skulls. And um, <laughs> and they look pretty cool together. Um, there's, there's several. Now, for, for example, Fantastic Fest, they mm-hmm. give you a beer uh, mug. So, right. <laughs> and, and I have to say, um, the award at Fantastic Fest is incredibly dear to my heart because it was the first, mm-hmm. and it and it started this whole snowball. So uh, even though it's deceptively discreet, it's one of the my favorites. <laughs> you know, and, and that's that's the one where you win, and and uh, they encourage you. They fill the mug with beer, and they encourage you to chug it on stage. Yeah. No, I wish that was the case. I didn't get it until way, way later. But then oh, I went back to, to to Fantastic Fest and I did make them fill it and I drank from it. So <laughs> <laughs> you, you actually brought it all the way with you just to, to have Yeah, it. yeah. Because and it was it was such a good experience because the first time my first tour of Fantastic Fest was with Tigers and um and I was on my own and I didn't know anybody in the horror community and nobody knew me and nobody knew tigers. And, um, and I was just, the movies are amazing in the festival. I love that festival. And, uh, and I was just, uh, you know, scurrying from theater to theater, catching amazing movies and eating a lot of, um, truffle popcorn and, mm-hmm. uh, not talking to Maybe, anybody yeah. because I didn't know anybody. And then the movie opened and it started to generate this buzz. And people started, you know, stopping me in in the theater to talk to me about the movie. And it was so amazing. So I left and I came two years later as a juror. And at that point, everybody had seen Tigers. And and it was such a joy. And I had met so many people. So it felt like coming back 
to a place that had become home. I was the outsider, and at the end of it, it was just home. It was beautiful to come back. That's that's the fantastic fest experience in a nutshell, for sure. Yeah, it, it's, it's one yes. big one big family. Like you yeah. just have to get. It's like a big family reunion where you're just kind of standing awkwardly in the the back at some point until some somebody comes up and gives you a big bear hug and pulls you in. That's that's just exactly. what, what that uh, festival is. Yeah, it's like summer camp that, for movie geeks, you know. Yes, every time. Yes, with less. Um, oh, I like so and so, and he looked at me, or she looked at me. I didn't have that experience. <laughs> I have to say, which I'm waiting for. No, I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> what? What? I'm kidding. No, what? Um, what is uh, the other thing that I found in, in Fantastic Fest that is so much fun is you know the movies, but you don't know mm-hmm. the faces. And sometimes mm. this happened to me with um, uh, Benson and Moorhead. I'm a mm-hmm. fan of, a massive fan of their movies, especially Spring. And um, and I knew they were going to be around, but I didn't know who they were. And I was really interested in meeting them. And I never, in my mind, I never managed. And then um, later, when I was back in Mexico, uh, and I still had a Facebook account, which I don't have now. I went on Facebook and I realized that I was tagged in a photograph having a beer with them. <laughs> I, <laughs> so I did meet them. I did get drunk with them. I just didn't know it was them. <laughs> so that didn't happen on my second tour. I knew the faces of the people that I was a fan of. And then you get a chance to get drunk with them. How awesome is that? Yeah, that's why you you gotta kind of perfect that sneaky uh, glance down at the badge that I, I perfected over many years of like I know I've met this person before, but I don't really remember their name, so I'm going to like move my eyes around naturally and and somehow <laughs> land on their badge so I I can get their name and not sound like a like for an real. asshole for not remembering who they yeah. were. <laughs> that yeah. child is because you have good eyes. I see for <laughs> shit. So I, I got that LASIK. I got that LASIK. <laughs> I know that move too, but um, I I found myself in the position on more than one occasion where someone walks up and they're talking to me in a very familiar way. And I'm like, I know I've met this person. I don't remember (sighs) what they do. Exactly. So I'll go to glance at the badge and their badge has flipped around. Yes. (laughs) You know, that was like my one play. Now I got nothing. So you're like searching through context clues in the conversation. Like, so uh, you're still doing what you were doing the last time we met? And they're like, yeah, which is unhelpful. Oh, you know? helpful. <laughs> yeah, I've, I've gone through that conversation like three or four times. I'm terrible with, you know, names and faces. But yeah, at a certain point, it's just better to say, I don't know who the fuck you are. Can you please remind me? Uh, yeah. you, no. you just want, want to do it. I, I can never really have the balls to do it every time I... I it think feels about that spirited. And, yeah. No, no, that, that in festivals, uh, the other factor for me is that, it's, you know, festivals like Fantastic Fest, when you talk to people, it's in a very noisy environment, incredibly yes. noisy. And I'm not a native English speaker. You know, I, I, I can speak it as I think, you know, by now I can read it. I can even write in it. But, um, but it, there's a still occasions where you miss words and you have to put together the meaning very quickly in some mysterious and amazing part of your brain. Mm-hmm. But um, I had an experience in, in Morbido Festival in Mexico uh, where Tigers played and um, a guy came up to me and said, I'm such a big of, uh, fan of Tigers. And we, you know, we had that little sweet conversation. And he said, I'm also a director. 
And I was, oh, great. Um, what did you directed? What, what is your name? What did you directed? And he told me. And for the life of me, I could not get what he said. So, oh, yes. <laughs> but he had this face of, <laughs> you know the movie, right? You, like, he had that face. And I was like, oh, yeah. And now you're stuck just wishing that they're not asking you a question about the movie that you don't know what, <laughs> what even that movie is. So we, we talked for a while and, and eventually um, lovely guy goes away. I turn around. A friend of mine is there and I go like, who is? And she says, um, that's Jan Evernall. And, uh, and uh, you know, uh, he did Baskin. And I was, oh, oh, oh shit. Wow. Uh, which is, you know, Baskin. And uh, but this has happened several times. And not until later you have a chance. And that's the beauty of the horror circuit. You have a chance to go back and say, hey, I know now who you are. <laughs> let's <laughs> right. talk. And the conversation goes in a completely different direction when you have that reference, right? <laughs> On the second meeting, you're like, hey, I just wanted to remind you that I knew exactly what you were talking about <laughs> the first time we met. <laughs> and there was no confusion on my part. So Baskin, big fan. <laughs> I thought I you were going to get to the end of that and be like, you know, it turned out he was, he was saying Goodfellas, and I'd been talking to Martin Scorsese. Yeah, uh, this entire <laughs> I'm, I'm time. really bad with faces. I would be really bad with faces. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Well, you're obviously a horror fan, and this is a Stephen King related show. So let's let's talk a little bit about your Stephen King origin story. When did he first come onto your radar as this sort of pop culture presence? Well, um, you know, as it happens. My mother died when I was eight years old, and um, uh, she was a horror fan. And uh, I was a tiny horror fan, but uh, my mom didn't let me fully become one. You know, she, she was protecting me of watching horror movies, though I was a very young, avid reader. And I, I managed to get to Edgar Allan Poe. Um, mm-hmm. That was the limit of what she would let me. And, and she was insistent on the fact that I have to be a little older for this stuff. And then she died uh, very suddenly. And I have a, it's, it's me and a younger sister who is now a veterinarian. And my dad, you know, came to us a couple of days later. We sat down and he said, OK, guys, um, you know the bad news, obviously. But there's some good news. He was trying to, you know, cheer us up. And he said, which is not an easy task, you know, what are you going to say right. to two kids that just lost their mother? And he said, so um, there's a change in management in this company. <laughs> <laughs> and um, as such, we are taking um, suggestions and requests. What would you change in the management of the company? Oh my <laughs> and God. it will be considered, which is, I think, a really, really great idea. Yeah, so that's there a great was way some to put requests. it. It puts some of the the agency in your hands at that point when you feel like you've got nothing and you don't have control over anything. And then Especially you after suddenly have a loss have... like that. You had this deep feeling that you right. have no control over anything and that anything can happen to you and there's nothing you can do. So suddenly being yeah, that's involved. That's incredibly smart. Thing. Yeah. Yeah, I know. But here's what happened, though. <laughs> so smart okay. as that was. <laughs> uh-huh. uh, we were like, 
well, number one, we want to be able to grow our hair because my mom had a thing uh, for Audrey <laughs> Hepburn. I don't know, man. And and she liked to have me and my sister with super short hair. Also, you know, who has the energy to to fix the hair of kids? Right. <laughs> Certainly not me. And uh, so we always had super short hair and there was not talking my mom. It was very cute. I see the photos and I see why. But back then I wanted to have a mane. And uh, my dad was like, okay, long hair is in. And then the second <laughs> request was, um, we want to watch horror movies. And, and that was me specifically. And, um, and my dad was, uh, horror movies like what? And uh, at that moment in time. Yes. <laughs> at that moment in time, the, the two big movies uh, being released onto the world it, there was a year difference between the two of them. Uh, but in Mexico, they came out around the same time. And they were Alien and The Shining. So my dad um, said, okay, here's here's what we're going to do. He had seen the movies. Uh, he was a huge movie fan. And he said, so this is what we're going to do. You're going to sit down and I'm going to tell you what happens in each movie. Step by step. And then you're going to decide if you want to watch it. And we're like, fine. And so he's, you know, he went through a full recap, shot by shot of Alien and of The Shining. And he was so good. Let me tell you, he was so good. He had this deep voice and he was a natural storyteller. And, um, and I, I swear I saw both movies in my head so clearly. Uh, and in so many things, they were very close to the final result. Uh, I was not prepared for the Cenomorph, let me tell you. But uh, <laughs> but uh, the lady in 237 was quite close to what I pictured. He was good at this. And um, and then at the end, he was like, you still want to watch these movies? And we were like, yeah, hell yes. <laughs> I don't know what he was expecting. And he was like, okay, but here's the advantage uh, when you're eight years old and you're going to watch these movies is you know what's coming, which takes, I think it takes a lot uh, from the shock factor that I think can be very, very scarring. That sure. said, that said, I still saw all those moments, you know, <laughs> and then the chest burster and I saw everything that goes on in 237 and all of that was part of my very very young psyche very early on and those were only the two first movies and it it didn't stop with horror um there the policy of we could read or we could watch whatever we wanted as long as it was discussed stayed mm -hmm. i don't know if it was a good idea you know <laughs> i think it, it gave me a career certainly but, <laughs> and i pay the rent because of that i think but um, there's there's some dark corners in my mind. However, it opened a beautiful door for me, I think, which is um, knowing that knowing that um, bad things could happen at any time, and turning that horrendous revelation when you're that young into something fun into something that instead of destroying you, you can enjoy as entertainment was very powerful. And eventually, you know, this is what I do today. Not only I enjoy experiencing it, but creating it. 
Right. So, yes, I don't know what my poor veterinarian sister would tell you, but <laughs> <laughs> but for me, um, it has been life changing, honestly. And in the, and so I was watching tremendously adult movies at a very young age, you know, and um, mm-hmm. and, I, and a strange combination. I was watching um, The Shining and next week I was watching Tarkovsky's Solaris. <laughs> we and and which are oddly similar movies, by the way. Uh, these men lost in these labyrinths, you know, mm-hmm. and those connections um, start creating very weird stuff in your mind that to this day I find popping up in what I do. So, anyways, all of this super long ass answer <laughs> to say my first contact with uh, nuestro padre Esteban King. In the couple of emails that, that I've exchanged with Stephen, I've never met him. I call him Esteban, and he likes it. <laughs> um, <laughs> hey, Esteban. Um, anyways, that was my, my, introdu- my introduction. It was not a carry. That happened way, way later, but it was a shining. And um, it would take me years to learn that Stephen didn't like it. But then a couple of years later, around the time I was 10, I found a copy at home of Salem's Lot. Mm-hmm. which oddly enough I'm li- I, I never read it again and I'm listening to it in audiobook form now Salem's Lot made such a deep impression uh, on me that I still find myself referencing so many things that happen in Salem's Lot there's the feeling of these ancient creatures that walk amongst us and have watched us being terrible to each other is a thing that I've that I just used in a script and uh, the feeling of places that are evil, that is such a Stephen King concept that, mm-hmm. that there's places that have a rotten soul. It comes from Shirley Jackson and all of that, but, but Steve King has made an entire thing out of it. And the shining is a great example. This image of a young kid walking on a dare into a haunted house and seeing the ghost of a hanging man, all of those images. So it was center stage of my young mind when I started to write. I'm wondering then what, you know, just as a a transition into the the main topic that we're going to discuss today, like, how do you feel about The Shining, the novel versus the movie? Well, um, I, I saw first the movie, and uh, mm-hmm. and I didn't read The Shining until some years later. There, there, at that point, there was so much Stephen King to go through, and every right. year something new, as it still happens. And um, so it took me a while to get to The Shining, and I had this feeling back then that I had seen it. So I was a little bit more interested in the new stuff that I hadn't experienced. So I was reading other stuff first. But then, um, then I found The Shining and I read it. And I have to say, to these days, one of the scariest things I've ever read is, is one of the very few books in my life that I had to put down mm-hmm. because it was scaring the fuck out of me. And, uh, and that's so unusual. Was it a particular part? I do remember so clearly the, the topiary scene. I think that yes. everybody does in that book, right? Which is not in the Kubrick version. I have a, a very strong reaction to self-harm and um, and the idea of Jack Torrance destroying his face is I, I can I you know it's it's so powerful and um, and I that I miss sorely in in the Kubrick version. I think that could have 
lived in it. He never got the mallet out. He's smashing his face in with a mallet in the book, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I, I guess with the axe, it would have made short work of him. With a, with a, yeah. All he has to do is hit it against a door or, you know, as yeah. he's trapped in the thing. You could have the same the same effect. I, I get what you're you're saying there. Yeah. Right. I mean, clearly the movie was not going for for a lot of gore. And, right. um, I, you know, well, except for for the gazillion liters of blood. <laughs> That's blue. Right. Now, right. But uh, there's no I'm, I'm actually I'm thinking of the. The hacked twins. There, there is some right. for sure. But uh, had the movie probably uh, been done today, that bad hit to the head for the rest of the movie, you would be seeing. I think you would be seeing Jack Torrance walking around the hotel with a flap of his skin falling on on his face, something like that. You know, right. totally, that totally, would, like and, one and, eye, super bloodshot. Yeah, exactly. That kind of thing. And Kubrick yeah. is so discreet and minimalist with that. Which I'm sure Jack Nicholson appreciated because uh, <laughs> leaving for 56 weeks with a with a fake flap of the skin over your eye was going to do a number on his psyche. I have to imagine that it's a little bit like I'm I'm uh, as obsessed with Stephen King as I am. I'm also obsessed with Steven Spielberg and uh, Jaws in particular is my all time favorite movie and the way that like you hear Spielberg talking about Jaws and the use of of color specifically in jaws where yellow comes to represent the shark. And so he keeps yellow out of the movie unless the sharks around the Kintner boy raft or the barrels are yellow. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, you know, in the Alex Kintner's mother's wearing a yellow hat, you know? So like it's, it's all mm-hmm. tied in there. I love color theory in movies, but specifically I, I have to imagine Kubrick was wanting that the blood to pop. I mean, red's all over that fucking movie anyway. So, so the color much, theory argument right? doesn't yeah. really, <laughs> doesn't yeah. really work there. But in terms of the gore, you know, it makes it shocking whenever the, you get those flashes of the Grady twins laying in, in that hallway of blood, you know, it's shocking when the elevator opens because the rest of it's so sterile almost. Yeah. Yeah. You're yeah. so right. And Scatman's that, that death. A few moments. Sorry. Uh, and Scatman's death. When Scatman Crothers. Yeah. Gets the axe yeah, yeah, to the yeah, chest. Yeah. yeah. Like that's yeah. probably the most overtly, you know, gory scene. I mean, the, the, the twins lying dead in the high, high in the hallway, you're at least like witnessing the after effects. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Scatman, you're seeing I'm, this guy die on. I'm sorry. I got an amber alert. You're not going to believe this. <laughs> <laughs> it, my it wasn't voice, me. <laughs> my it wasn't me. I swear I've been here this whole time. These yeah. fucking things every time, man. It's just you 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 go like, well, it was a pleasure, guys. Now it's the end of the world. Let's wrap this <laughs> up. Fast. It says situation <laughs> at the Overlook Hotel. Danny Lloyd exactly. in danger. <laughs> I'm so sorry. <laughs> you so were talking good. about Halloran getting the accent. <laughs> and that no, some but... missing kid interrupted you. Tell me. <laughs> yeah, the, yeah. Rude. <laughs> Rude. Thanks kid uh no it's it's like the after effects of seeing the twins dead or the woman in the bathtub like those are the first two gory things that come to mind in the movie but the the only correct me if i'm wrong but the only on-screen murder is scatman crothers right i think right yeah i mean the other dead is jack himself and we don't see him die you know We, we see the after effect in a right. very very powerful cut, but um, but yeah, it's it's only that one dead. And watching it in 2021, 
Uh, it's so discreet for an axe murder. Let me tell you. Right. It's one it really blow. is. He falls down dead, and there's little blood for an axe murder. Uh, so he doesn't make a huge deal of 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 an, a tremendous axe killing, you know? Other than that, um, there's the cut on Jack's hand uh, when he's trying right. to get into the bathroom, which... It's also very discreet, that cut. It's just the idea of what's going on, which mm-hmm. is so powerful throughout the entire movie, I think. Well, the power of Halloran's death, or Scatman's death, is mm-hmm. that fucking long shot up the hallway or through the mm-hmm. through the lobby, like, while he's walking, you know? So you get, like, I don't know. It's been a second since I watched it, but I'm going to guess at least 30 seconds, if not longer, of him, like moving through the lobby very slowly and you're just like there's all kind there's like all these uh like uh pillars support yeah these support mm-hmm. pillars in that lobby there's couches and shit there's a counter over on the far right like there's yeah all this stuff someone could leap out of so you're just like bracing for it the time the entire time and then just when you think well it's probably gonna cut and then we're gonna get more of this later. Like, no, Jack, who's been there the entire time around that fucking yeah. pillar, comes roaring around the corner with the axe. It's uh it gets me every time. I've seen this yeah. movie fifty times before and it never yeah. like it never, never fails. fails. Yeah. yeah. I, I asked uh, a friend to come yesterday and watch it with me because I started watching it. You know, part of me was like, Oh my god, I should be writing and I'm going to sit my ass to watch a movie that I know. But yes, let's do it. And I sit, I sat down and I press play. Turns out it's an HBO Max, thank God. I sat down, mm-hmm. I press play. The the Ariel takes over the Beatle in the row to start. Right. Mm-hmm. And just with the credits, by the time the credits ended, I press pause. I called my friend and I said, listen, I'm watching The Shining. <laughs> It's such a powerful movie that immediately it stopped being a chore and became a pleasure. And I wanted right. to share it, right? And now we have a scene, so you can do this shit, which we couldn't <laughs> before. Right. You can watch a movie with a friend. How crazy It's, it's a miracle. <laughs> I know. So she came over, sat down, popped some wine. When I, I made her watch the credits, went back all in. And... Uh, I was telling her the entire movie, and I know I was talking over a Kubrick movie, but fuck it, it was too exciting not to. We know exactly what's coming every step of the way. And still, it's so tense. You're clenching your teeth and some other bodily parts while you're (laughs) waiting for this to happen. It gets you. It gets you. It's not about the blood. It's not about the violence. It really does. It's about the madness. It's, it's about the tone. Yeah, the mm-hmm. tone fr- right yeah, from the, the get-go. The, the, the Wendy Carlos score, the, you know, the, just the, the long, slow movement of the camera is so precise throughout the entire thing, whether it's on a, a, the steady cam or, or in that helicopter shot. Like that, that movie just has its own unique visual identity that a lot of people have tried to copy, but nobody gets it right. Nobody completely like, gets it right. And it's, yeah. it's completely the, the soundtrack. It's extraordinary. My friend that came yesterday, she's a music editor. So, and I, I'm always obsessed with with how you use music and and uh, sound atmospheres in movies. And um, and it's extraordinary. But particularly listening to it with um, with a music editor. So it's a combination of of Wendy Carlos 
and um, the Pandereki sounds, and uh, it's 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 so extreme. And the movie moves; it always moves slowly, even at its most demented at the end, which is the opposite of what we do today. It's a two hours, 21 minutes, long movie. And it doesn't feel like that, by the way, in spite of the fact that it moves crazy slow. And he lets you know from the beginning, from those long takes, it's just a car moving in the road towards a hidden place. And it's going to be very long and it's going to take its time and it's going to take you with it. And you know that something Mm -hmm. incredibly sinister is happening, though it is the most innocent moment. And then you have these long ass talky scenes with, you know, the the hotel manager and the performances. And I didn't feel that all the times I saw it years ago. Um, But I, but I, I was very, very aware last night that the performances are very peculiar and very stilted throughout the movies. It's not a friendly movie that embraces you and lets you, get cozy with the characters at all. It's distant, mm-hmm. it's formal, it's hard, and the, the performances are stylized. They're, they're, they keep you at a distance. And then there's these long talky scenes, and then there's a long talky scenes with a child psychologist, and then there's another long talky scene, and it takes a while, and things are slightly strange, but not too much. And there's mm-hmm. very <laughs> few music at the beginning, and then there's a little bit more music, and a little bit more craziness, and that is getting very weird. And it's you know, and there's this now outside, and we cannot move, just like the movie, just a slowly floating. And eventually, you're in the middle of this fucking nightmare that doesn't stop pushing forward in this deadly slow fashion that will mm. get you exactly like Jack following Danny in that labyrinth. Dan- Jack is limping. He's not fast. He's still going to get you. It doesn't matter how fast you run. This is going to get you. And I think that's at the center of the movie, this feeling from the first shot in the credits that there's a dark presence hovering away and is slowly following you at your own pace. It follows you at your own pace from the first shot to the end. It's always right there with you. Mm. It's always right there with you. It's always been there, which is the message at the very end of the movie. Right. It's always been there. You've always been here. (laughs) I could listen to you talk about this movie for hours. This is fantastic. (laughs) Um, I I think what you're kind of touching on here is it's a word that I think of when I think of Kubrick, which is methodical. You know, I wouldn't categorize it as slow because you're always sort of hypnotized by whatever Kubrick is up to, you know, on screen. There are there are all of his movies require patience, you know, and if you give yourself over to that patience, then you become hypnotized to use the word again and um, and pulled into it. It's why he was a master. You know, Uh, it's one of the many elements is that attention to detail and and that pacing and it's it's all methodical and that's that's exactly what jack is in the back half of that movie where he's you know stalking and killing his family as you pointed out you know he's got a limp he's he's injured in those final scenes but it's he's inevitable at that point yeah 
Right. Yeah, you know? you're not and going the, to stop him. When the no. only way to escape him is to is to outsmart him, essentially, and that's what Danny does. Like I, I, I always love, and I've loved from my childhood viewings of it. I love that the kid isn't the dumb kid that's just running scared. Like he formulates a plan where he realizes that his dad can track him in the snow. So he uses that against him. Right. And he uses his own footsteps to back out and and confuse his father. And that's how he gets away. It's not because he outran him or, you know, figured out the maze, the maze puzzle or whatever. It's not any of that shit. It is quite literally just like, I'm going to outsmart you. I'm going to outsmart this thing Mm -hmm. and get out of the way of of this, you know, death machine, essentially. Yeah, completely. And not just outsmarting. Go ahead. No, please. No, 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 please, please, Hugo. I've been speaking like for hours. Well, I was just going to say, and not only out, out, outsmarting Jack, but the hotel itself and all the power that's behind it. It's like channeling through Jack at that, right. at that point. Here, you know, here's what I discovered yesterday. I don't know if I'm saying something that it's for sure in some corner of the internet, there's, <laughs> there's someone that <laughs> came up with this idea, you know, but what I was seeing yesterday is the hotel is a labyrinth. Mm-hmm. Getting mm-hmm. to the hotel, the road is kind of a labyrinth. It goes under a bridge, you know, it's serpentine, and it, you get to this hidden place. And then the hotel itself is a labyrinth, and you can get lost in it. And and Wendy gets lost in it. At, at the end, I think it's completely intentional that she doesn't know in what direction. She doesn't know. It seems like parts of the hotel you, we've never seen before. That is revealing its gods, as happens in dreams. I, I'm sure you guys have had this dream where a familiar totally. place, we find a new door that we hadn't seen before, and it has this whole new, and that's the way that the movie connects. And I, when I was saying nightmarish, it has this dreamlike um, quality in the performances, in the movement. It has this borderline liminal place between reality and dream time. And mm-hmm. um, so it, it, there's this labyrinth inside and you cannot crack that labyrinth if it catches you. And then inside that labyrinth, there's another labyrinth, which is the topiary, the labyrinth. And and so much so that there's a model of it and, and Jack looks down on it and he sees Wendy and Danny <laughs> lost inside that labyrinth at some point. So when the movie moves to that final inner labyrinth, Danny can get out. And the only way he gets out is by backtracking. But he can do that. He's not trapped in the labyrinth. Jack cannot. He's going to go all the way to the center and disappear in the labyrinth because he is the labyrinth. He is there. He's in the photos. And this is your own mind. And he's trapped there. And he's never going to get out. Yep, there's there's a layer there too. Like you are mentioning, there's the model there, which Kubrick intentionally does that uh transition to the aerial shot right mm-hmm. while he's looking down there and so you can absolutely read that ending as happening within the model if you want to and that they're all you know that they were in in the hotel the whole time you know what i mean the that you can time. read it at least as a you know a, a metaphor for you know for the kind of the maze of the mind and all that which is which is a fascinating cerebral addition that that kubrick made because the you know the the hedge maze isn't a, a thing in the book. It's more about the topiary animals is, is the, is the equivalent there. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and you know, it's to me, you know, I, I, I love the book a lot, but like, I, I really do feel like 
like that, that hedge maze is so ingrained into what my understanding and appreciation of the shining is that I can't really separate that from the story now. It's it it's I'm, you're I'm, I'm with you a hundred percent. You know, watching the movie, and we know this. We know what an iconic masterpiece uh, it has become. But watching it again, you realize how many moments, how many frames in that movie live inside our skulls forever. And it's mm-hmm. not usually that happens with movies once, tw- really with really exceptional important movies that change cinema you know so if you think about um raiders of the lost ark which is another of the best movies ever made um Mm -hmm. and you go oh there's there's the stone and there's a bunch of moments but but the shining is scene after scene we know this shot we know this place Mm -hmm. we and you know and, and your brain just clicks with it because it was branded and that um that labyrinth is you know leaves in our heads because and, and, and the way that kubrick managed to put in our heads the labyrinth inside jack's head forever is kind of powerful that mm-hmm. man put that labyrinth inside our heads and we're going to die carrying it that's <laughs> cinema <laughs> Well, that's the pull quote for the episode right there. (laughs) Um, And, you know, and not just the labyrinth, but I've over the years, I've read or watched a number of video essays about the impossible geometry of the Overlook Hotel. Yes. Yes. And 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 it's sort of like on the one hand, it's like, well, it's a set. Of course, it's not going to completely make sense. But on the other hand, knowing what we all know. Yeah, it's Kubrick. Like knowing what we all know, I do think it was intentional. I do think yes. that the layout and the blueprint of the hotel was um intentionally nonsense. You know, once you start breaking it down and uh one of my one thing I really want to do on this on this show before we, you know, reach the the bitter end is get like an uh, like an architect on here. To to yes. really like walk us through the yeah. the fucking blueprint of the on screen overlook host. I I don't know how I'm going to do this without assigning someone a lot of homework, <laughs> but uh, but I'm fascinated by this idea, and it was something that had never really occurred to me. And then when I started reading about it and watching those like video essays online, which by the way is something I never do. Like I'm not big on video <laughs> essay stuff, but those I will always watch because it's like. There's there's truth to it, and there's there's something diabolical about it. Yes. You know? Yes. I buy and it. I, it I, I, con- yeah. Considering uh, what a control freak this man was, do, yeah. Is it even possible to imagine that he didn't think of of the a mind like that 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 would control the last detail in frame and sound totally. and performance? Jesus Christ! Let me tell you, as a filmmaker. Those things are in your mind all the time. You know, you go things like, okay, so in theory, only three hours have passed, but this guy in the other scene is there and you know, it's impossible. You know, you have control of that. And then you have a team that will tell you that you're perfectly aware when the exterior of a location will not match the interior. And and you're constantly asking, can we get away with it? When you're a normal person and uh, not Kubrick, 
you always go like nobody's gonna notice and <laughs> and you know what if uh, the, uh, the way we say it if someone notices he gets a free ticket for the next show that's what we do and uh, <laughs> i'm sh- that's not what kubrick would be doing no you know that all. man would if if the architecture didn't match he knew not only he knew he planned it i'm completely with you on that yeah. Again, I, meticulous. I roll- meticulous is the word for, right. for mm-hmm. Kubrick. I, I roll is- my eyes at, at a lot of that, the room 237, you know, kind of conspiracy theories on this yeah. stuff. Uh, <laughs> a lot of it's just like, you know, people who obviously don't know, you know, how movies are made and are reading into, oh, this chair in this shot was a quarter inch that way. And then now in the next shot, it's a quarter inch. It's like a it's fucking a guy bumped into it. You know, at a, uh-huh. you know, it's like that's in between setups. Like that's, that's what happens. Uh-huh. All the car was five feet back in this shot. And now it's 10 feet back in this shot. It's like, it's, it, it's a continuity error. It happens. But, but for sure, when it comes to the architecture of the Overlook Hotel and the interior, um, I understand the reason. I can understand the reasoning behind Kubrick intentionally making it not match up because it does give you this little feeling of otherworldliness that it's not, things aren't exactly where they should be. And you don't, can't put your finger on why, but you know that, that this isn't exactly right, but it's, it's, it doesn't feel like a mistake. You know what I mean? It just feels like an intentional thing. Completely. It's, it's just the way that it will mess with your brain because while you're watching a movie, your brain somewhere in that, in a, in an abandoned apartment, apartment there, is trying to make sense of a bidimensional space in the end. Right. And it's trying to translate it into, into three-dimensional logic. And um, which is one of the biggest challenges when you're shooting to, to be faithful to that three-dimensional logic of the audience. And uh, and it what what's happening at a certain level of your brain is is it's messing with it. And you're having this feeling that the world is not really truly making sense, which is right. Absolutely, um, in pace with the strange performances and the strange right. atmosphere and the peculiar rhythm of the movie, and everything is just on the edge of real, but not completely. I'd like to ju- use that as a jumping off point to talking about Shelley Duvall in the movie, because you're right, every character in this movie ha- is off in some way in terms of their delivery or whatever that's everybody but for whatever reason you know you know i think fairly obvious reason shelly duvall was the one that was singled out on release like people weren't going like oh jack nicholson was over the top there they were you know they're kind of like king himself he yes, called it's um, you know shelly so duvall a, you because, know, um, a shrieking dish rag or whatever so it's you yeah. know it, but every you're right everybody in the movie from Ullman, the hotel manager to scatman carruthers uh you know danny lloyd everybody in the movie is very intentionally being directed by Kubrick to give that kind of off performance. Yeah. It's all, it's all heightened. It's heightened to some degree. Exactly. And there's, there's a couple of moments. And again, this cannot be random. You know, the manager of the hotel, when, when Jack goes in, his hands are, he has his, his elbows on the table on, on his desk and his hands are hanging down. And it's just the weirdest gesture. (laughs) And and it stays there for a while. And you go, that's not how hands behave. That's not how (laughs) hands behave. And and we all know that this was 50 takes. And his his hands are fucking hanging there for 50 takes. 
So it's so interesting that something is slightly off all the time. All the mm. time, something is slightly off in an atmosphere of utmost perfection and those symmetric shots, but something is off. And um, and you have a, you, 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 the performances definitely are there. For me, the, the bathroom scene with Grady, which is yeah. so powerful, yeah. they are not moving. And, and, and that scene, we go, is that happening in the real world? Or is it happening inside Jack's mind? We don't know. Right. And uh, we truly walk up the, out of the movie theater never knowing. Except then Grady opens the door in the real world for him to get out. But we don't see him. You know, it's just not consistent. Which I love. And I would want to <laughs> yeah. shout this to many executives I work with. Would they go... But I don't get the logic of why this and this happens. You go, because because madness, because madness, that's why. And madness is particularly maddening when it is inserted in a very logical, as you said, methodical world. Then it's particularly maddening. That's when your brain starts to going, wait, what? Wait, wait, hold on. Is this real? Is it not? So you have that bathroom scene with, with Grady and Grady's talking incredibly powerful stuff and it's one of the best performances i love that performance with his english accent and uh, and how and he he rolls his r's when he's like correct them correct. like i i don't know I, th- that always stuck out to me even as a kid like just the way he's like talking all proper but then he like rolls deliciously like rolls his r's you know this shakespearean correct. delivery He's like and, an uh, Edward Edward Gorian illustration brought to life somehow. <laughs> that's exactly you know? right. That's exactly yeah, right. That's exactly what an Edward Gorey uh, character would talk like is is Grady <laughs> in The Shining. Oh yes. So and, and then you're he's he's with his back to us for whole chunks of that scene, and when we finally see his face, when we go to the reverse. It's way, it's way further. It's, it's way more open. It's not a correspondent. So we never have this feeling of looking into Grady's eyes ever. Hmm. He keeps him, he spills the drinks. His face is out of frame. We go into the bathroom. It's shot over his shoulder. And we, we stay on Jack's face. And Jack's face barely moves. Mm-hmm. It's, and, and it's just this gesture of cleaning the, the spilled drinks while they go. It's 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 amazing, and I think maybe I'm wrong here that that bathroom scene has to be a huge influence on David Lynch doing those dancing dwarf scenes in Twin Peaks. Hmm. It's such a similar feel, and David Lynch is the master of: Are we dreaming or are we awake? Are we dreaming mm-hmm. or are we awake? He's the master of that line, and I. Th- Maybe I'm wrong, but I would feel that that Lynch consumed this movie, digested it, and and turned it into Lynchian surrealism. You know, it has to live somewhere in his head. I cannot believe it doesn't. That's a good point. Anyway, I do feel like it's it, <laughs> yeah. it's in conversation with that. That's that's interesting. I hadn't thought of that, but you're mm-hmm. you're definitely right, especially with the red room scenes. You yes. know, it's right there. Yeah. And this, uh, um, go tell ahead. me, Shelly, whatever you want to go with this. <laughs> well, well, this I, is, this has been a, a point of 
a discussion lately. The Hollywood Reporter ran a, a big thing not too long ago where uh, one of their reporters, I, I believe it was, uh, fuck, I've forgotten the guy's name, so we'll edit this part out. Uh, Seth. No, 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 no. No, it's, uh, it's good. I, I, I even thought it was for some reason the Rolling Stones, the the Rolling Stone, but it was the Hollywood Reporter. You're right. Yes. Right. They sent uh, Seth Abramson down to uh, to Texas to to speak to her. She lives just outside of Austin. People have asked us about getting uh, Ms. Duvall on the show before, and our position is that she's been through a lot. You know. And we've we've seen footage of her on on things where it seems like, God damn it, I don't know how to talk about this without being offensive. It's 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 tough, right? No, it's you know, well this this industry, and especially this town, though the Shining was shot mostly in London, but this industry has a way of chewing people up. And spitting the yes. pulp of them. Exactly. And um, and I think you can see in in Shelley's performance, not only here, but in other roles of her, how what a toll it took. Delicate, delicate creature she is. Yes. And, and yes. it's right there. And um and it's going to take um some fortitude and some callousness and 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 I don't know what to survive the things that that the cinema life is going to throw your way and the TV life then. And he was not kind to her. And um, though from the article, it reads that she's, you know, she's at peace now with the whole thing. Right. And I, I don't think anybody should give her any more, you know, Hell, except if she wants to, she, if she starts, you know, saying, "Hey, I want to tell my story." That's a different thing, right? But uh, but otherwise, it's it's hard because because Shelley, her spirit just simply didn't take it, which is completely comprehensible. We all know that, you know, I felt like that myself a bunch of times, and uh, uh, like going, I cannot do this anymore. I simply can't, and I'm not a performer. You know, you have a certain degree of control. When you're trying to tell the story, you don't have full control because other people have to tell you, okay, you can do it and you can do it until here. And then you don't have control. But when you're a performer, you have to pretty much give up control of your work. And um, we cannot say that it was The Shining at all, uh, but The Shining would have taken a toll on anybody. It was 56 weeks. I didn't know this. I, I found it. Recently, 56 weeks of being scared in and, and running around and crying a lot in a haunted hotel, which is a soundstage, but still in an eminently male world in a complicated time to make cinema when you're a woman and in, under the incredibly demanding, uh, obsessive eye of Mr. Kubrick, who broke the world record of takes um, famously on that stair scene with the bat. Right. And they shot for three weeks. Three weeks was she going back, terrified, uh, in front of no less than Jack Nicholson, because we know how scary he can be when he wants <laughs> to. For three weeks, going again and again, 
get away from me and crying and and swinging a bat and you can see it in in the result you can see that the horror and is real and the exhaustion yes completely (laughs) it's it's even silly to make the comparison but um you know after making tigers it takes a huge toll on on an actor to say okay when i say action you're going to be terrified and when i say cut you're going to be fine and let's do it again and again and again and again fear i didn't know that you know you kind of know it but i didn't know it until i had to direct someone scared to death Mm. how a hard it is to convey when it's not real i don't know if you can act fear i think you have to really put yourself there and and do it over and over and over again for a year and a month and stephen king got this right when famously stephen king didn't like the movie when he saw it and um and for many many years and I think only recently he has said, "Okay, listen, it's a really good movie. <laughs> it's just not, it's just not my mo- my my novel, certainly." But his main criticism back then and today was the fact that the character of Wendy didn't exist. And you know, knowing what happened with Shelley later, and again, it doesn't have to be directly related to the experience of shooting the shining but again that was not kind on anybody you see the rest of the characters and you see how the whole movie is a tour through jack torrance's inner labyrinth and his dead body at the center of it he's always at the center of it all and um a little boy who you can see as the one escape from that universe and this woman who has no characteristics, no career, nothing to do except to follow her failed writer of a husband, and who, by the way, is doing all the work. <laughs> he's uh, while he's writing, she's the one turning the heaters, and she's the one doing the work while he is trying to write. And he says, "We're not going anywhere." And she, for a long while, says, "Okay, we're not going anywhere." And, and not until he becomes homicidal, she makes some decisions. And in the end, she's ineffectual. It is Danny who guides uh, the monster into its own labyrinth. It's not her. She gets lost there, cries, and finally runs out. That's it. Which is very little of that character. And as much as I adore the movie, it makes you wonder what the movie could have been if there had been an actual character for Jack to run against. You know, Grady, the ghost, or the whatever Grady is, which I think Grady is the hotel talking to him, or himself talking to himself. When he talks uh, through the pantry door, he says, your wife is more, more, more resourceful than we thought. I didn't see that. I didn't see the resourcefulness, you know? And I would have loved to see it. And I do believe that as demanding as the part was on Shelley, if she had something to hold on to, it would have been different. I'm curious what you think about the moral obligations of a a filmmaker, a director, versus the emotional stability and strain that you're putting an actor on versus the need to create the art. Well, that's... The question of the month, isn't it? 
<laughs> because mm-hmm. um, not because not because directors and performance that conversation is coming. It's coming in three minutes, guys. But um, you know, we we thank all the gods and goddesses. We we went through a Me Too moment that um, stopped. I saw it happening. You know, I know that there's a very strong reaction around the world against walk culture and um, and the dangers of um, of of turning rights into a tyranny. And it's it's an interesting line, you know. But that said, um, I personally saw a change in how many men interact with women in this industry. It mm-hmm. changed. It changed the stuff that I had to listen to, and the stuff that that I had to endure to to make a career. You know, today I don't think I can hear a single of those comments and not have consequences. And that that is amazing. Right. That conversation is starting to happen not only about sexual harassment but about harassment in general, and um, and that's that's coming. You know, there's this all over powerful myth of the genius that um, can get away with any abuse because he, mostly he or she, but mostly he is a genius. And, um, and we just, you know, we're coming out of a week where Scott Rodin, uh, not related to sexual harassment, is getting a lot of comeuppance because he's, uh, you know, apparently really, truly not been treating people like people. Right. And um, and I'm, I'm I've been thinking a lot that this is this is going to to come to directors because if there's I mean producers are are they you know we've seen this this happening to producers but at some point directors, it, it I am one but it's a breed that. In both in theater and in cinema, have been able to get away with a lot of stuff because there's this sacred mission of the film. And that's going to, to, to come biting the ass a bunch of people. And I think that's healthy because that's going to encourage a future where it's not going to be okay to treat people like shit. And that's fantastic. Right. Now, with Kubrick and, and Shelley Duvall, after all this, I, I went directly and I looked at footage of them interacting. And it does it truly doesn't seem abusive at all. But on, on a on a you know on a daily basis on the way he treated her incredibly nice. But uh, but the final result is it was it was a painful experience. And the, and there has I do believe there has to be a responsibility, you know. I worked with um, with children in in Tigers Are Not Afraid, and um, the selfish mind of a storyteller. When I it works in a way that when I was writing the script, I was thinking, Jesus Christ! And first, I need to find these kids that can give me these performances, and then I need to get those performances out of them. And and I don't know if I can do that. You know, it's a very peculiar thing working with children, and those were my concerns, not the safety of the psyche of anybody. At all, mm-hmm. and then I found the kids, and um, and I started working with them. And lo and behold, you know, if you're going to ask a kid to be terrified over and over because you're telling this kid, so this is scary and bad things are happening and blah blah blah, they're gonna have nightmares, and it's usually you know weeks of work, 
and uh, and you're responsible for that. And I realized that what I was doing with them was a thing that they would remember for the rest of their lives. And it was my responsibility, my responsibility and no one else's to make it into something that they would remember fondly right. or remember it like something that they needed therapy over later, you know? <laughs> yeah. And I, I, I didn't have the tools, you know, I'm not a mother. I, I made a very clear decision that, you know, I'm, I'm going to make movies, not kids. And, uh, <laughs> and, uh, and then I'm responsible for, for the psyche of these five kids and I, I'm unprepared. <laughs> so I did my best and, uh, but you, be, you, 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 you make a decision there. And honestly, for, to, to get better moments in the movie, I could have pushed harder. No doubt. And maybe I would have better scenes. I just you might, you might have 55 awards from film festivals if you'd completely <laughs> broken at least two of those children. Right? I'm just saying, if you really loved your art. <laughs> but, but, uh, but the truth of the matter is, I, you know, I saw it and, and I worked on it very hard as best as I could, you know, with them. And they're perfectly fine and they're super happy and they remember the movie like the best time ever. And, uh, and I've, I've said this to a number of people, but I know I love telling the story of how. On the last day of, of shooting, they came to me and they said, um, so we have, here's the idea we have for the sequel. <laughs> because we, <laughs> they didn't want it to be over. And, right. uh, and they pitched to me this idea of, of, of what the sequel should be. And it was funny for me because I was like, yeah, but you, do you realize that several of you died in the movie? And they, were, <laughs> and they were like, that's fine. That's fine because ghosts come back. That's your idea. So let's go with it. So some of us are alive and some of us are ghosts, which is kind of cool. You have to know. know. So anyway, yeah. you're responsible for this. And um, so questions are going to be asked about a bunch of movies that we adore, you know? And it's going to be so interesting to see the process and the cost of making them. In some cases, right. this has come up with um, the, you know, the birth of a nation, famously, yeah, or Fitzcarraldo, where people died shooting it, you know. Yeah. So interesting because if you think of Fitzcarraldo or or you think of um, The Shining, it's about the madness of a man um, trying to accomplish a piece of mm -hmm. art, Absolutely. you know. And and how things are going to burn in the way, and and sometimes that's okay. It's interesting. Jack Torrance gets lost in that labyrinth. A little bit to think about there. <laughs> what do you make of the idea of a movie that you might love dearly, that you know some really shady shit happened on the way to it getting made? You know, like, That's does a it toughest question? I know what you're asking. Yes. Yeah, exactly. The The movie I always think of in these conversations is uh, the usual suspects. Um, yes. One of the most shocking twist endings I'd ever seen in a theater. You know, I saw that movie like day one, uh, kind of on happenstance in a theater. I knew almost nothing about it. And it blew my fucking mind. And instantly became like one of my favorite movies because of the experience I had while watching it. And now yeah. years later, you know, there's this baggage attached to it with with Kevin Spacey or Brian Singer. And I'm like, well, I don't want to be 
out here publicly saying that, you know, I still love that movie, you know, but also like I do feel kind of weird uh, revisiting it now, kind of like with Michael Jackson's music or, or yes. you know, any any number of another things where we've since found out that there was like really awful shit going on behind the scenes. So I'm wondering how you personally deal with this. I think we're all struggling with these questions and every day we learn more about stuff that we truly love that, you know, probably would, we would rather not learn to tell you the truth. But here's what I think is this bunch of artistic works are extraordinary as art and um, mm-hmm. they're meaningful, incredibly meaningful in the path that art has taken, you know, without the shining I don't know if we would have a Lynch or we would have a different Lynch, who, by the way, is the mm. nicest guy. You can do it, by the way. You can do it. Uh, uh, right. You can do genius and being nice. It's possible. It's very important that. And I don't know if pop music would be, if there would be a, a Britney Spears who, you know, is amazing and all these amazing music producers without Michael Jackson. So you cannot banish a piece of art that is a piece of the clockwork that make art and media and language and psyche work today. You cannot simply make them disappear. You can't. However, you can watch them in full awareness. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, totally. And B, you can and must take them as a reminder of how we need to do better. How you can actually create the art and be a decent human being. And I'm I'm not talking about you know, Mother Teresa, but I'm talking about decent human being, you know, someone that doesn't destroy people would be nice. And again, I'm not even sure that that's the case with The Shining, which is one of my favorite movies and forever will be. But uh, I don't don't know for certain that we can truly connect what happened with Shelley. And actually, I'm pretty sure that it has more to do with the industry than what it has to do with The Shining. But I'm, I'm also pretty sure that The Shining was not a thing that she could have hold on to to fight what the industry does to you when it could have been. It could have been that. It was a small family that she got in contact right as her career was taking off. So would it destroy the movie if the character was a little deeper and if the the takes were less demanding? I don't I don't think so. I honestly don't think so. So the future shinings have to not be that. It's for sure. And and they will there's going to be accountability is coming our way, slowly, but it's coming. And and yes, we have to be careful that it doesn't get out of hand and becomes paralyzing for creation. And risks have to be taken, you know. Um I needed to I needed to to take these kids into an emotional journey. And um and we got out of it fine and you know, honestly better then we went in for me too i'm an orphan myself and um and and we worked with deep emotions and and um and the kids learned beautifully on their own to go into a deep dark emotion and come out of it which is something they can take for life could the movie have been better if if i had gone harder of them i don't know does it matter i don't think so so i think it has to be a reminder that we can achieve good storytelling 
without the human cost. I think that there's also two parts to this as well, because you're looking at the usual suspects in and of itself isn't a movie that abuse was fostered on set as it was happening. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, whereas if you look at his follow-up at Pupil, there's lots of, you know, yes. uh, cases of, of abuse on that set, uh, documented cases. So to me that, that colors things, you know, even more, it takes it more out of a gray area and makes it more uncomfortable to watch um, or yes. try to revisit or to put it in context. Um, just like, you know, it's hard, you know, listening to Thriller, you know, one of yes. the best albums of all time. And, you know, I can listen to it. And like, I know in the back of my mind, it's, you know, that the production of this piece of art wasn't directly involved in abuse, but the person behind it was. And the success of this fed into his ability to abuse and, you know, destroy a lot of young children you know, force them to, you know, to have to rebuild well into their adulthoods, you know, the trauma they went through as, as children and that that's a little bit grayer. So, I mean, it is, uh, I mean, you spoke so very eloquently on, on all that. And, uh, it's really a tough thing to tackle because I don't, you know, uh, selfishly, I don't want to give up the shining, you know, I don't want to no. give up, uh, you know, my enjoyment of bad, you know, it's like, I don't want to, no. I don't want to give up, you know, usual suspects. It's like, you know, I don't want to give up Manhattan, you know, but it's like at, yeah. a, at a certain point, you, 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 I think you, you nailed it when you said that it's not about just erasing those things from existence. It's about approaching them with the context of, of what, what has happened and, and with the knowledge and respect, you know, that that deserves, you mm-hmm. know? Right. I know. And, you know, knowing a little bit more of what happened to Ms. Zoval yeah. and watching the movie after, that whole staircase scene plays differently. And, it does, um, man. you know, so it's a different the whole movie. The whole movie yeah. kind of plays differently. Once you mm-hmm. are, are, are looking at it through that prism, I don't know. You've already, you've already said this, but it, it really is a thing where we're all grappling with this. Now you would hear stories, you know, even if you were just a casual film fan about like a troubled production or, someone not having a good time on set or this director is a tyrant or, or whatever, but, or, you know, like in the case of, you know, Brian Singer or something, this, this person may have been in, was probably involved in something far more insidious, but the reckoning is happening now, you know? So, so there's this like growth period where we're, we're all kind of coming to grips with this and like, you know, and and what I found in conversations with friends and stuff is that we're all kind of drawing our own lines. I won't support this anymore or, or future work from this filmmaker. I won't do this or I will do that, you know, and it's it's hard to quantify that on a general scale to everybody. But I think it's good. You know, it's it's obviously a good thing that things like this are being brought to light and that you know, hopefully we're going to be transitioning into a world where shit like this doesn't happen The conversations are, exactly. Uh, You know, for me, that's the whole, the whole um, conflict with, uh, with woke culture uh, and the resistance towards it. And it's a word that even the word has to be used carefully. For me, it's like, guys, if we're talking about the film industry, just the film industry, well, this is a century old industry that was built on abuse and it's changing 
and it's changing fast in front of our eyes. So yes, it's going to be a period that is going to be very strange. And it's going to, on occasion, move too much in the opposite direction. Perhaps, honestly, sometimes too much. But think of a scale that has forever been completely uh, falling on one side. So in Mm -hmm. order to get it to a place where the scale is even, you need to push a little too hard on the other side for it to then balance. And this is what we're seeing right now. And it's it's going to feel like a big swing, honey. It's going to feel it's going to be a big <laughs> swing. And I don't know if we're going to see the end of it, but it's part of a process that will hopefully get us to a place where the balance is real and the conversation we don't have, need to have the conversations anymore. And and it is going to be a very rough, very confusing period of transition. Well, and, and, you know, it's it's never going to be a utopia. As long as there's any industry, whether it's weapons manufacturers or politicians or sports or entertainment or, you know, the local Best Buy, you know, it's like... It, Basically any, any industry, uh, major American export. Any place where people will have power over other people, there's going to be abuse of that power. That's just, oh, yeah. it's going, it's going to be there. But what I really love about this movement, as you've said, is, is, uh, you know, I don't think people are saying you have to be an angel to work with. You just have to be accountable if you overstep. Right. And, yes. and that's, you know, and, and I think the very rational look at that, you know, I mean, we're looking at the, um, you know, the George Floyd's murderer just got, you know, got, uh, uh, a guilty verdict and it's uh, it's a record it's a record setting thing that a, a cop is being held accountable for it but you know i don't think that that so many it, we're, we're in a, a place right now where we're just demanding people who we allow to have power over us whether it's a director or you know police officer whatever you know we are demanding that that it with that power comes the responsibility that they have yeah. uh to not abuse it and if they abuse it then they have to be accountable for it and i think yes. that if you just boil it down to anything it really is accountability so if you you know with the scott rudin stuff if you fucking act like an asshole and you you know send send your assistance to the fucking hospital of course you should there should be accountability to that yeah. more than than just a whisper network and, and it's a you know, mighty I, beautiful fight it's a mighty beautiful fight that was needed in every you know it's in the end is the most essential human struggle let's yeah. stop oppression Oppression is not right. So, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's the simplest concept. It's fucking. And, it's and fucking our, wild that like one of the biggest struggles we face is like don't be a dick to other people. Exactly. You know, like you know? that's fucking crazy that we have to spend this much time like thinking about it, talking about it, which has been underlined radically in the last you know four years. And yeah, and uh, not not that every every asshole is an asshole because Trump was president, but he certainly like gave gave them something oh. to be out of and you know and it's yeah suddenly he and was okay. he was emboldened clearly emboldening emboldened a bunch of people and uh and it, it was all this is completely underlined in the last in the pandemic where people said fuck you i don't want to wear a mask yeah. you know when they realized oh, yeah. that masks aren't about protecting you it's about protecting other people then it became very easy for a certain segment of this population to go yeah. well fuck it i don't give a shit about anybody else so well, right what what right. these men did is it made it okay to voice out loud the ugly voices inside our head. And we all have the ugly voices inside our heads. The way that I think the brain works is when there's conflict or there's tension or there's something opposing what I want 
and needing life, the ugly voices rise. And anything that is other than me or different than me is not good. Mm-hmm. And and the voice is going to tell you that. That yeah. if I whatever I am, man, woman, anything in between, anything combined of those two, whatever the other is, is not great. Whatever color the other so and so those nasty voices, and by the way, Jack Torrance is a fantastic example of <laughs> having nasty voices inside your skull. What right. we do, what people and listening to them. do exactly, exactly. That's the difference. What people normally do is you you shut when they come up, you shut them down. You are like, that is not nice, that is not kind. We, we don't do this shit. We don't we don't talk like that, we don't we don't say these things. And when even when you allow yourself to think it, you don't say it out loud because it's not okay. But what happened in the last four years is that suddenly it was okay to say this shit. Suddenly it was fine to say out loud things that you should never say out loud. And that was huge. That was enormous. Not to completely derail this into a political discussion, but like, you know, Biden isn't the candidate for uh, a big swath of the left, for sure. Like you can, you can say that. Yeah. I, I, I supported him. I'm happy that he's president. Um, but you can clearly, it's a night and day difference whenever he was in office. And, oh, God, yes. and you know, suddenly everything was rolled back. And when Trump just kind of went back to his fucking golf course and disappeared out of the discourse, like I'm seeing the, the results of that. I'm seeing people being less of, you know, rude, you know, aggro assholes out in public. You know, it's like I, you know, I'm just in my personal life. I've seen the effect of that. So there, there is something very strong about, you know, having that allowance. You're allowed to be you know, this way you're allowed to indulge in the worst of yourself. And the reverence towards uh, men in power in any branch of life that misbehave and uh, and it's okay, is that tide is changing. And we're going to see more of it. And what's interesting in connection with the movie for me is it is a movie about a man that loses his stuff. And it is also gender and it is about power that for me that relationship with gravy is so interesting because that's a character saying you know my children who by the way were girls and my wife Mm -hmm. got out of line and i had to fix that are you going Mm -hmm. to do the same Mm -hmm. and he goes i am going to do the same i'm going to set this woman straight Mm -hmm. and uh, and so the movie is about that and get what it doesn't go well for him (laughs) 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 i'm gonna switch gears here because i have one more question for you and we've already kept you a long time thank you uh and this this might be a good transition so much fun tell me tell me (laughs) oh yeah uh and uh this may transition into you know where you're teasing whatever you've got coming up but while i was looking into uh the irons you have in the fire right now Mm-hmm. Uh, I came across an article on Deadline where you are set to adapt and direct Our Lady of Tears Yes, for Blumhouse, which is based on a, an epic magazine article written by Daniel Hernandez called uh, mm-hmm. The Haunting of Girls Town. You said something in your statement when this was announced that I'm very curious about. Uh, I won't read the entire statement, but I'll read the, the pertinent part. You said, I grew up on a steady diet of supernatural visitations and miracles. And I'm curious if that means you have had 
paranormal experiences? Uh, yeah. <laughs> Am I about to yeah. turn this into a three-hour episode by, by yeah, opening that door? Go, like, really, you want to go there? Because that's a plenty crazy, crazy story. No, well, um, it's as simple as I am Mexican. And um, the whole culture in Mexico, this is, this is the way I see it. If, if you're Mexican, you either have uh, put a spell on someone or had gotten a spell on you, and most probably both. It's as simple as that. So everybody in Mexico has a witch, una bruja, or un brujo. And we work with that. And sometimes, you know, with magic, I feel it's so funny. Time and again, I when I've resourced to magic, <laughs> which is the, your last resort usually, and it, it still happens to me. It's incredible that uh, that I'm this rational person. I I don't believe in God. Um, and then and then when when things get super super complicated, I will just you know make a spell. That's how it works. But here's what happens with magic in my experiences. Wait, what do you mean? You just make a spell? Are you a bruja? No, but but you know you learn. Like, don't you have to be licensed to be doing spells? No, but that should be done, you know, because there's some <laughs> people that are not serious out there. Let me tell you. <laughs> yeah, but you We're going to you need to you to fill out some paperwork here, ma'am, before you <laughs> exactly. put exactly. out a love spell on anyone. Or yeah. Well, let me tell you, the tax revenue for that in Mexico would be awesome. Someone should be doing that. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, you know, all the time, you you know, you fall in love. And you you get a, an image of San Antonio, and you you put it um, upside down because what that does is San Antonio doesn't like to be upside down, and you're not going to turn it turn him back up until the guy or gal you know starts looking your way. That's how it works. So it's little gestures like that, or full blown crazy madness like waiting to, for a you know new moon and and writing and stuff and then learning it and the whole thing that's 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 how it works but here's the deal it will not and i i just keep forgetting <laughs> that in my experience when when that happens when you find a sorcerer that will tell you how a thing is going to happen or is going to clean you do do a limpia on you to take whatever about it is you know the rational part of me goes like i don't believe in this but just in case let's do this it's just it's not going to hurt it's also helpful for the writing because it's an interesting weird experience right so you do it and a part of your mind goes okay i'm done where are the results and that's not how it works <laughs> usually in my experience they tell you something they sell you something something and not until a year a year and a half later it just clicks and happens and it takes you a while to go like oh i had asked for this it's so interesting and then my rational part the rational part of me goes like don't be an idiot it was just chances were that in, with enough time things were going to fall here just keep on working right. you know yeah. but it doesn't sure. hurt <laughs> but in terms of insure in terms of the the purely paranormal have you ever seen a ghost you ever seen some wild shit? I yes, I've seen one ghost, and and this is the the least um, Mexican folk 
culture story because I saw that ghost in New York City. <laughs> in Go on. <laughs> I was uh, I was married on on one of the marriages. There are several that I, don't, I hope <laughs> that's not on Wikipedia. I hope that's not on Wikipedia. But uh, it's not um, actually. <laughs> and uh, so I was on, on on one of the marriages, and um, and I went uh, with a husband to New York and uh, catch some theater. And it was, we were there for, I don't know, a week, whatever. And we rented an apartment. And um, at the end of it, this was, from the moment I walked into the apartment, I had a very, very, and I'm not a psychic, you know, I had, I just, I just couldn't sleep in the bedroom. It was one of these strange things they do in New York, where they make an apartment from uh, the lower bedroom and a basement. And the bed, the, the bedroom was in the basement so no windows it had this weird feel it was very dark so i couldn't sleep there so i left my husband who was perfectly happy there and i slept in the in the upstairs bedroom and um the last day that we were in new york i went down and i opened the door to the, the little bedroom said hey wake up we have to leave and he said yeah 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 just one more minute and i said fine and i went upstairs and i started packing my stuff and then i was with my back to the stairs um down to the other bedroom and i had um this distinct feeling that he was coming up the stairs not necessarily hearing it is that part of your mind you're i was concentrating on something else but you know that a person is coming behind you and i slightly turned to him and i could see him on the edge of my vision and i didn't see his face i just saw a guy that came from downstairs towards me and then turn around and walk upstairs to the kitchen so it was like oh he's up great and um i even i think i even said uh, get the coffee or something he didn't answer and then i turn around and i i put some music and you know turn the volume up and i'm as i'm packing my husband uh, yells at me from the bedroom can you turn that down and I go, what the fuck, he just went upstairs. <laughs> and I had this horrendous feeling. I went down the stairs. He was in the bedroom. He was still asleep. And I had this horrible feeling. And I just very slowly went and peeked at the kitchen upstairs. There was nothing. But I'm telling you, I saw this person. And um, the one thing Holy that shit. I... Yeah. But the 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 one thing that I always have is... I don't have <laughs> premonition dreams. What I have, which is not very useful, is dreams that explain things that already happened. It's not very useful as a gift, I know. It's not a great superpower. <laughs> You're not going to be I a have, good man. X-Men no. at that no. point. No, yeah. it's just like, you know, can you imagine the X-Men that comes like, hey, you know what happened a week ago? I'll tell you what it was. That's not a superpower. <laughs> <laughs> so, but uh, I think but I Magneto was trying to destroy New York, guys. Yeah, you know, I don't think he was <laughs> in a good mood that day. That's what happened. Um, <laughs> so, no, my superpower. I had a dream um, that night, and it was this completely articulated story in the dream, and it was so lucid about um, this is Scott Hitchin, so it made sense. A broke actor that had made a decision of killing himself. And went from the, the downstairs bedroom up and hanged himself in the kitchen. And it was so clear that I woke up and I knew that was the person I had seen. Did you research the location to see if an actor had died in that kitchen? 
No, I never did. And I'll tell you why. Because this happened before we had Wi-Fi. So it was dial-up. And, uh, <laughs> and we didn't carry around the smartphones. So no. um, this was back in the day when, uh, when I was writing. As we know, when you're writing, half of the time you're writing and half of the time you're Googling stupid shit. Like <laughs> names for characters or the name mm-hmm. of a street that you're inventing. You're Googling. Half of the work is, is doing that. And I do remember that back then, because it requires the, it required the whole dialogue thing, I would write for a bit and then write on a little note all the Googling things that I needed to do. And then, you know, once a day or twice a writing day, I would stop, dial, Google all that stuff, and then go back to work. Can you imagine that we did that? <laughs> I know. Because today, <laughs> well, I remember quite the well. Yeah. I had, you know, it was, it was an entire endeavor. So, um, so now, uh, you know, the moment that you wake up and you have that dream, the first thing is you reach out for the phone, Google it. That was not the world. Though I should now, you know, I should do it. Yeah, you should. You might have a, an incredible epilogue to that story at this point. Yeah. And, and you know now that what? we all have smartphones in never our hands. Hap- if it never happened, I can say it did. Who cares? <laughs> yeah. That's the beauty of you being still a writer. Saw it. You know? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, um, this is usually the point in the show where we uh, allow our guests to tease whatever they're, whatever they're working on next. Uh, in your case, that is, that is several things, isn't it? Um, yeah. I guess the first thing I, I want to ask about is this, Thing that was announced a while back uh, that you're wrapped up in with uh, Guillermo del Toro, which is a werewolf western. Is that is that still happening? Yeah, uh, hopefully, yes. I I wrote two drafts of it. Um, the second one was very challenging. You know, there's 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 rewrites that open up and you go and and the script plays with you, and there's there's rewrites where it locks. And it refuses to change, and and you get mm. to the point where you go, why am I even moving this? It's um, it's not that bad, you know, <laughs> and all of that. It was <laughs> a top rewrite, and um, and I delivered it. But then Guillermo, uh, by the by the point I delivered it, it took me a little longer than what I expected, and by that point Guillermo had gone back to the second part of of shooting uh, mm. his Nightmare Alley. Uh, Nightmare Alley. And um, and not until he delivers Nightmare Alley uh, are we all going to be able to to focus on uh, it's called the Midnight Drive the the werewolf movie and um, and I I'm super excited you know I I this second draft I managed to put a lot of Mexico in it and Mexican characters and the and the relationship between Mexico and the U S in the late 19th century and, you know, in a very fresh border with Mexico that had just moved. And it's, um, it's an interesting look into the war between the monsters that we try to keep controlled, which is the nature mm-hmm. of the werewolf, and the monsters in our history that we try to keep secret and forgotten. Nice. Well, I'm hyped for that one. I like the idea of westerns plus werewolves. You yeah. know, you don't see that very often. Although you no, might be competing with uh, Glenn Danzig, noted auteur, 
Glenn Danzig <laughs> on. Uh, he's he's doing a, a vampire western coming up, but um, I have a feeling you're going to blow him out of the water on that one. Let's not talk too quickly. I'll, I'll, I'll listen to the question, but I feel that have there's... Have you a... seen... Well, well, hold on. Have you seen Veronica? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I, yes, I was, I was, I was being nice. I was being nice. Let's be nice. <laughs> I was being nice. Well, yes, we we can be nice, but we can also understand what we have seen. We're, we're standing against. I, I hear you. I hear you. There's another uh, werewolf western. You know, I I went deep down the rabbit hole on Amazon Prime. <laughs> mm-hmm. And you oh, know no. how yeah. Jesus, there's the, there's that way lies madness. Yeah. Oh, so yeah. um yeah. and and I feel that we still need the the werewolf western definitely. Um Right. I'm willing to bet that I, whatever I, werewolf western thing you turned up on Amazon Prime is not uh <laughs> not a classic. <laughs> that you have to dig up certainly is not is not a classic. But there's a there's a natural I feel that there's a natural connection between those two, you know. The the Native American and in 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 the case of the script that I wrote Mexican American relationship with shapeshifters mm-hmm. is right there. Is right there, unlike mm-hmm. vampires. You know, I think vampires an imported interest. That said, white culture is too. So you could get away with vampires in the West. No, that you can get with, uh, away with anything in the West, but you have to be careful. You know, like aliens and cowboys, you have to be carefully and basically. <laughs> and I, I think you can get away with anything. Yeah. Right. Right on. So my my question is, and this could potentially derail us. So feel free to give me the short answer on this. Um, I can never because, ever give you a a short answer, and I you should know this by now. <laughs> but don't ask away. There are two camps when it comes to werewolves. There are the monster werewolves, and then there are the dog werewolves. Which one? The one where you just transform into a, a, a recognizable animal, and then there's one that where you transform into like a man wolf hybrid. Like which which is the the one that you prefer? Monster all the way, and yeah, um, totally. correct, to the that is a correct that, answer. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> completely. I agree, and but this goes beyond uh, a man wolf. It becomes a man wolf monstrosity, unnameable, mm. strange, you know, rotten soul appendages. Well, that's what's on yeah. the page. Let's see what we do with right. the monster makers, <laughs> right? Uh-huh. Right. <laughs> All right. Well, that's uh, good. So my next question is about uh, lost souls. I I'm, I'm not entirely sure the name of it, other than that that is the name of the short story. That this, yeah, that's, that's, that's the name be. of the short story uh, by Matthew Baker. And mm-hmm. uh, but the title that that we have now and we're going to stick with it is the Book of Souls. What can you tell us about that one? Well, the um, the producer is Noah Howley, who right. is you know another hero of me. Um, Noah, I think, and I connect powerfully in our weirdness that uh, we understand the uncanny and the weird. And uh, and the fact that there is a whole level of visual narrative that doesn't necessarily need to connect with logic and the mm-hmm. laws of reality, and um, and by doing that, you enforce the parts of the movie or the show that are real um, by the contrast with the very very strange stuff happening underneath reality. 
So we truly understand each other there. And he was um, our natural ally for this. So uh, Matthew Baker, who is the, um, the writer, he um, he's amazing. Matthew's stories are so unique and extraordinary and, and beyond generous. He, it's, he writes a little bit sci-fi-ish and, uh, and a little bit horror and a little bit fantasy and a little bit dystopian and, um, and a lot of humor in what he writes. So uh, he wrote this short story um, about women who um, get pregnant. Uh, well, there's pregnant women in the world, as happens. And um, when the babies are born, one day, a lot of the babies, a big percentage of the babies, start being born without a soul, empty of a soul, alive, healthy, but they have not a soul. And then they die, maybe 10 minutes after birth. And, um, and at the beginning, nobody knows what's going on, wh- what's going on with these babies in this catatonic state and then dying. And then eventually some uh, scientist runs um, a mathematic model that proves every single time without error that the numbers of babies that are born with a soul corresponds exactly with the number of people that die that day on earth. Meaning that finally we ran out of souls, that there was a limited number of souls in creation. And we use them all. Oh, I love and, that. Uh, isn't it? And then... Yeah, it's great. Women that are pregnant have to figure out how to find a soul or secure a soul for the baby they're carrying. And that gets <laughs> fucked up pretty fast. <laughs> right. Yeah, I can imagine. Oh, man. And, okay. This, yeah. is, this is more than I, I knew about this project, and I'm very hyped about that one now. Yeah, me too. Great. It's a, yeah. it's a, I'm so excited about that script. So excited. Okay. And the last one here is uh, Our Lady of Tears, which we, I, I believe I mentioned in passing. This is also based on a piece that was written by Daniel Hernandez for Epic Magazine called The Haunting of Girlstown. Where are you at on that? What's going on with that? Yeah, I, I delivered a second draft and, um, and got very few very good notes from Blumhouse and from Epic. And, um, and I, you know, those are two lovely companies, very different. I'm very happy working with them. It's an incredible true story. I had no, it's incredible that I had no idea. I am from Mexico city. I was living in Mexico city when the events happened and I never heard of this. Mm -hmm. So the true story is, in the outskirts of Mexico City, in an extremely poor area of Mexico City, there is a massive, massive boarding school for girls. And um, it's Catholic. And uh, the nuns, who are mostly Korean and belong to a newish order of Catholic uh, nuns, go around the country in Mexico recruiting girls that come from the most impoverished backgrounds girls that have no access to to high school education mm-hmm. uh, or middle school education girls that um, you know in many cases are in, in complicated family situations in 
complicated security situations because in some places in the country, it's, it's tough to be a young woman, you know, and survive. So the nuns recruit them to and give them a chance to come to this school where at a time 2,000 girls study and to go, to go through middle school and high school and, and walk out of there with a degree that hopefully will change their lives. It is an amazing opportunity, but it is also a, like an incredibly isolating experience because you mm-hmm. pluck these girls out of their families, their cultures, their geographies, and you strip them of their identities. You know, you put them in a uniform, you cut their hair, and, and it's it's... I get it. That is the only way to keep any semblance of order and reason and education when you have 2,000 teenager girls. Right. And in 2007, they have an epidemic of mass hysteria. And the girls started not being able to walk and to have extreme pain and, um, and being paralyzed and having seizures and and. Par- completely incapacitating headaches and manifestations. And they were convinced, convinced that they had been cursed by one girl that had disappeared from school. And it got to the point that the school had to call uh, child services in Mexico. And this is the, the article, Danielle's marvelous article is based on um, a very long interview that, that he's did for a long time with uh, the main psychologist treating the girls who herself felt the symptoms at some point. And eventually it went away. But, you know, it's never been clear what really happened in this school. So it's, it's such a fantastic invitation to write a story about mysticism and religion and isolation and teenagehood the female experience when you put so many mm-hmm. young women together. And, um, and you know, me, myself, I don't believe in God. I am an atheist, but, um, but you grow up in a Catholic country. And because I was a, an incredibly complicated child and a troubled kid, I would be kicked out of every school that my father, after my mom died, would try to put me in. And eventually the only school that, that was willing to keep me was Catholic school, and it was because the nuns wanted to save my soul and convert me. That didn't work, but I did have a long run in, <laughs> inside the Catholic school system, and that was that was intense. I think for for them too. I think it was intense for me and for them. Eventually, I was kicked out, and uh, eventually they couldn't do it anymore. And you know, uh, I guess I win that one because now I'm writing about a similar experience. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That, it's a fairly insidious, you know, racket that they have going on there. My my nephews were put in Catholic school for a majority of their elementary schooling, and they their family not very religious, like in practice, but like the parents very much like to say that they're Christian. You know what I mean? But they never went to church mm-hmm. or anything. But they yes. knew that the best teachers in the area were all at the Catholic school. But in order to get the best education for their kids, not only did they have to pay, you know, an absorbent amount of money for this private Catholic school, they, you know, it also came with, you know, a forced uh, religious component to it. Yeah. They, there was no option for them to, to, you know, just learn from these nuns, you know, and then go home. It was, Absolutely. you know, they had to do, you know, church at the end of every day, you yeah. know, they had to, and you have, to have all, all that, that thing. And, it's it's, so and they, they, they know, they know what they're doing. They know that, you know, they offer that great education that even non-practicing 
people, you know, they try to get them when they're young and, you know, they combine a good ed- education with that uh, kind of a forced, this is what your religion is now. And my nephews are now in uh, public school and like I, they, I talk to them, they're so happy to be out of it. Like it, it almost had the opposite effect for them where they might've been curious about God and, and all that stuff at that age. But like, you know, I think maybe they overdid it a little bit and now they're just happy yeah. to, to not believe in any of that stuff. I don't know. The Catholic church is known for many things, but subtle methods is not one of them. <laughs> <That's right>. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> so yeah. <laughs> all right. Well, Thank you so much for joining us. We're extremely excited to see everything you have in the works. And this was a fantastic episode. Uh, we we hope you'll come back when, you know, these things start coming out. We'll find another excuse to, to go real long with you. Awesome. Let's do that. Guys, this was a blast. I love every minute of it. Many thanks to Isa for joining us for that very lively uh, discussion. I would like it on record. That when we started talking about brujas, the actual uh, recording process itself came under attack, it seems. So maybe we welcomed in some dark energies. We almost lost that episode thanks to back-end tech bullshit. And uh, uh, we somehow warded off those evil curses and uh, were able to finish off the show. Yet another KingCast exclusive, I just want to point out. <laughs> Warding off brujas on the air. Or bru- brujas, that's how I say it, right? Yeah, that that's the plural of... Bruja, it would be brujas, yeah. Warding off brujai, the brujais. Uh, you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna throw some spice on it. I'm gonna say warding off pinche brujas on the air. No now we're just inviting more more trouble. And any brujas listening to the show, please do not uh, curse us. You can uh, you know aim all that dire in the direction of whatever Dean Coons podcasts are out there, except for mm-hmm. our April Fool's episode, of course. Correct, correct. That doesn't correct. count. So. Next week, we are breaking the format once again, just slightly, just a a tinge. We are talking about a Stephen King story that has not been adapted yet, but it is one of the all-timer Stephen King stories. Mm -hmm. It's in my my top five easily. Um, I think it's probably his first true masterpiece because he wrote it before he was uh, famous. So he wrote this before he even wrote Carrie. Uh, I'm talking about The Long Walk. And... We brought in a really exciting guest for this one. This is a guy who like, you know, if you follow me on Twitter or uh, you read my work at Birth Movies Death, uh, you know, there are certain movies that I go to bat for more often than not. This is a leading star in one of the movies that I went repeatedly to bat for. And it was a delight to talk to this gentleman. Yeah. So we'll have to leave that vague because i think if we get any closer or give drop any more hints you'll figure it out it is an actor it is an actor who you know it is an prometheus well okay okay so you're narrowing (laughs) it down you're narrowing it down to like half of a it's the guy from prometheus (laughs) it is is the guy from prometheus we'll we'll say we'll say that much but which guy there's like 14 guys in prometheus so somebody will guess it just by process of elimination 17 17 to 1800 guys in Prometheus, but I got a guy from Prometheus here. I'm so excited about this and, and he'll be here and he's going to talk to you and he's going to tell you stories right up front about Prometheus. Maybe you don't like Prometheus like I do. Fuck you, but you're going to hear some stories about it and you're going to like them because they're funny and they have Ridley Scott in them. So 
Eric, go ahead, please. I, I yeah, no. Well, the, this guest who it was in Prometheus, I, I will narrow it down <laughs> for you. It is it is not Guy Pierce in his old age makeup. I will say that. Not in old his man old Guy age Pierce. makeup. Yeah, well, that's why I'm I'm specifying. It's not Guy mm, Pierce okay. in old age makeup. Could be Guy. So there, Pierce, not though. check that off your list if you're you're trying to figure out this complex puzzle we've laid out before you. Um, (laughs) uh, Well, what I can say is that this guy, this actor is a huge fan of the long walk, has some very great insight into the story, the characters, you know, kind of how it fits into King's overall oeuvre and uh, how he would want to see this particular story adapted into a medium you might not instantly expect from the story. So, so it, it, there's lots mm-hmm. of really fun talk here, especially if you're a long walk fan, if you're not, you know, we're going to spoil the shit out of it as we usually do. So, you know, prepare for that. Um, but if you haven't read the long walk, you need to do that. It's like no shit top tier Stephen King. Right. And mm-hmm. I, I just don't want this part to get swept under the rug, but mm-hmm. it is a guy from Prometheus. He will be here next week. Oh, I'm so, yes. so excited for y'all. To yes, hear. yes. Let's talk about the bonus episode. This sure. Week, Eric. Um, sure. Here's a thing that's been weighing on me heavily. Mm. A thing that I can barely, I, I can barely sleep under the crushing weight of the concerns I have about this. Are you ready? Mm. My soul is prepared. All right. It's about what does the younger generation think of Stephen King? Hmm. And yeah, who when do we you talk think? about saying young generation, we are talking like le- legit Gen Z. We're not talking about millennials, those old ass motherfuckers anymore. We're talking about yes. Gen Z. Yes. Who do you think that we would bring in as a guest on an episode to discover what the younger generation thinks of Stephen King? Jacob Tremblay <laughs> revealing all secrets. That That is not true. You're lying to the people. We don't have Jacob Tremblay. Well, that's OK. That's true. Tell them who we got, though. We got a very smart young lady who goes by the name Gory Corey. She's a Fangoria contributor. She's making a name for herself Mm -hmm. while still in high school uh, about covering all sorts of genres, specifically horror. And she caught our attention when she was part of the Fangoria Chainsaw Awards. And, you know, I don't know. I started off in this this business doing – uh, blogging stuff and writing about movies. Well, when I was still in high school, when I was a teenager, and she's kind of on the same track. Uh, and she has some really great insight into how relevant Stephen King is to the younger generation. And we kind of wanted to to highlight that because you know most of the people we have on the show are well, we can call them olds. We're we're olds. We we're you know thirties, thirties, forties, fifties, yes, and above. Uh, so we <clears> wanted to have yes. you know somebody from the younger generation come in and, and talk about Stephen King. So that'll be on our Patreon this Friday. That is patreon.com slash the Kingcast. And as always, you can find us on Twitter at Kingcast19. And, you know, rate and review us on iTunes, give us five stars. Anything less, we'll you know, we'll sick uh, Isa and her bruja summoning powers on you. See. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks everybody for listening, and we'll see you next week for the long walk. The Kingcast is a Fangoria podcast production. The show is produced, hosted, and created by Eric Vespi, that's me, and Scott Wampler. Tira Ansley and Abby Goel are executive producers. Daniel Danger is our art director, and editing is done by yours truly. Mm-hmm.